the series we're in, uh, Outward Faith. Uh, this is one, it's going to be a six-week series. We're in week two now, if you uh, weren't here last week. And it really is looking at this intentionality of our faith as we connect with others, connect others with God. Uh, that everyone here, if you're in faith in, in Christ, uh, it started with something very inward, very personal. Uh, but it's designed to now move outward and that there's uh, really intentional relationships you build with the people around you. And not just, as we're going to learn today, your family and your friends or the people in this church, but all people. That gospel-centered relationships doesn't uh, extend only to other Christians, but even those, and especially those who don't know Christ, that your relationship with them, everything you do, is motivated by the deep and the profound love of Christ. It's meant to move out. And the, the gospel, the heart of the gospel is love. The heart of all of God's commands is love. And the center of our relationships then should also be that love. And so the, the text we're studying today is the parable of the Good Samaritan that you've heard. It's one that if you've been a Christian for a long time, you've probably heard a hundred times. Right? You know this story in and out. Even if you're not a Christian, You've never opened up the Bible before. You probably still know the story, the Good Samaritan. It's likely the most well-known uh, scripture in all of the world, Christian or non-Christian. Uh, but it's something we need to be reminded of often, building these relationships with other people, uh, loving your neighbors. It's not just this common speak of doing good, but rather it, it, it addresses something much deeper in all of us. This parable we're going to read today uh, really has two great purposes. One is to show the extent of what it means to love your neighbor, but the other is to reflect on ourselves and understand what we're truly capable of and what Christ is capable of. So we're going to read that today. I want to take a moment to pray for us, especially when we get into these uh, stories, these scriptures that we seem to know like the back of our hand. The tendency is to want to tune out, but I, I guarantee you, this is a parable we all need to hear often. It's a, it's a selection of a teaching. We're always going to learn things and always apply things. So pray with me now before we read the scriptures today. So God, we thank you for the invitation uh, to love you first and how important that is, but also the invitation to love others in a more deep and a profound way. And so God, I pray as we study this scripture today, uh, that we would just find ways to apply this in our own lives. Undoubtedly, we're all going to fall short in this area, but I pray specifically for you to be working in us today through your holy word, that your Holy Spirit would be touching all of us in a way that's, that's uh, purposeful, that's individualized, that we can grow in our love for other people as we have this outward faith, that our faith affects people beyond ourselves. And so, God, I just pray for all of us now that you would just be giving us this wisdom that is only given by you, that you would speak through me and into our lives today. And we pray this now in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. We're going to start back further than we normally would when we study this parable, because often what we miss is the whole setup of why Jesus gave this parable in the first place. And so we're going to start in verse 25 as he's interacting with this expert of the law. So Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? 
Well, what is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go, and do likewise. There's a lot to unpack in this portion of Scripture. And oftentimes we read this story and, and we think it means just do good to people and you'll go to heaven. And if you minimize it to that, obviously we're missing the point entirely. And that's not consistent with all of the rest of the teachings of Jesus in the Scriptures. But the first point we see here is that loving your neighbor is not a conditional commandment. It's not an optional one. We don't get to pick and choose who our neighbors are and when we get to love them and how. And so we see the setup of this parable. It's this, this legal expert, this lawyer, who comes to test Jesus. Okay? And so the lawyers of this time were, were people who knew God's law in and out. All of the hundreds of commands, both the do's and the do-nots of the Old Testament, it's the same scriptures we have in the Old Testament. They knew them well. All right? These legal experts would have also known the thousands upon thousands of, of additional commands, the ones that were given traditionally through the rabbis through the centuries, that really evaluated all the ins and outs of life and what it meant to, uh, to live the law perfectly. So this legal expert would have known all of the laws. He would also have known all of the loopholes of the laws, all of the exceptions and the conditions of when it was and wasn't okay to follow the laws. And so we see this man coming to Jesus, the great teacher, who had had spoken in front of thousands and thousands at this point, profound messages of teaching. But we know this man's heart because it's revealed to us. He wasn't there to learn from Jesus. He was there to pick a fight with Jesus. He wanted to argue. And so he came to test Jesus and said, he asked him the most important question of which he really wasn't interested in the answer. How do I inherit eternal life? How do I go to heaven? But Jesus, knowing the heart of this man, realized he wasn't interested in the answer. 
He already had it in his mind. He came to pick an argument. So Jesus, as he often does, turns these things back on the person and says, well, lawyer, you're the expert. Tell me, what does the law say? How do you go to heaven? And he gives an answer that's really important. He boils it down to the great summation of the law. It's the same answer Jesus gave, which is basically love God and love people. That's what all of the law sums up with, is love, right? Love God, love people. And the answer from Jesus here was kind of a a probing one. He said, great, you answered right. Now go do it. Another way of saying is that you know the answer in your mind. Are you actually living this out? Are you actually loving God? Are you actually loving people? And this is where you can sense that the, uh, the lawyer, the expert, was kind of caught here. And it was that moment of like, ah, you got me, Jesus. And so he tries to justify himself here and says, okay, tell me, Jesus, who is my neighbor? Again, he's not interested in the answer. He's already got it in his mind. Right? He knows all the loopholes. He knows all the people who are his enemies, who he doesn't need to love. And, and he's really trying to figure out uh, how I can get out of this law, these expectations, to love my neighbor. He's getting off now on this technicality. And what's interesting, what's interesting here, he wasn't even going to try to argue the love of the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, because he knows he's failed that one. Let's get off on this, this neighbor technicality. And so this is really the backdrop of the parable we're really going to study today, is this man who asks this important question, how do I go to heaven, who isn't interested in the answer, and is really looking for all of the exceptions of the command. He wants to justify himself in not keeping the full commands of God, that he may feel righteous in his own efforts. But loving your neighbor is not conditional. It's not something... We get to pick and choose, and so he, he goes into this parable that we know so well. And the first point is that loving your neighbor goes beyond a sentimental feeling, right? And, and people say, I've already done this well. I already love every person in the whole world. And that may be true from a feeling standpoint, but when the rubber meets the road, are you actually loving your neighbor? And so Jesus is giving this parable, I believe, to really show the faults in this man's heart. To say, if you want to live out this command, this is what it looks like. And so he gives this example, this story. Now, keep in mind, this is a parable. As far as we know, this never happened. This is just an example Jesus gave of this man who's traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. And this road would have been well known in the time. It's still a road today that you can see it's, it's treacherous terrain, these big cliffs and rocks and boulders. It's hard to walk in and of itself, but it's also uh, especially dangerous. There's lots of caves and dark places for thieves and robbers to hide. And even today, it's something you wouldn't want to walk alone uh, because there's a high likelihood you could get mugged. So this man, predictably, in this story, gets mugged. He's beaten uh, the thieves steal everything from him, including his clothes, and it says they left him half dead, which presumably means he was unconscious, and they left him to die. That without intervention, he probably would have become dehydrated in the hot sun and would have died on the side of the road. But right away, Jesus says, a priest and a Levite come by on the road, and anyone in this culture would have been saying, hooray, 
The heroes are here, the priests and the Levites. Surely they would be the ones to help them. They just happened to be going down the, the same road when they saw the man. And a little bit on the priests and the Levites. All right, so you understand this culture and this context. We often look back and say, you know, the priests are the ones that could have been a Pharisee or a Sadducee. They were the bad guys. They're the ones who opposed Jesus. Uh, but in this culture, they were the best of the best. The priests were the ones that were responsible for all of the worship and the sacrifice in the temple system. They were prestigious. They were heroes. They knew the law in and out, and they lived righteously. They knew what was expected, and they were the ones who often did that and did it to the T. Levites, all right, were from the same tribe as the priests. All, pri all priests were Levites, but not all Levites were priests. But if you were a Levite, you were in the temple system. In some way, shape, or form, often the Levites would have been assistants to the priests, but it was the same thing. They, they were ones who knew the law. They were highly regarded. And they're some of the best educated people in the land. They knew what was right and what was wrong. But here in this story... Even though if you're called to something like ministry, you have to have a love for people. They didn't. They didn't. It goes beyond this sentiment of, of feeling good about people, but it is accompanied with action. And here we see both the priest and the Levite do the same thing. They recognize this man in need, in great need. And if no one intervenes, this man is going to die. They see him and actively they walk to the other side of the road. They're essentially giving him his death sentence. Right, we don't know why they would have done this. We can come up with all sorts of reasons. Maybe it's the legal excuse. All right, it's this man who is bloody, who's now unclean. He's dead or mostly dead, which is also unclean. Maybe it's this technicality of do I know for sure that's my neighbor? I've defined who my neighbors are and aren't. I don't know this man. He's nude in public, which is a very shameful thing. It could have been this, I don't want to be exposed to that or be seen with someone like that. There's the personal excuses of I'm busy. I'm on my way to something. I got a dinner reservation and I can't be late. I'm tired from this week of serving in the temple. I just want to go home. I've done enough good this week already. Or that guy looks like a pretty big problem. I don't want to get involved in that. I don't know how long this is going to take. Maybe it's the logical excuse of he probably deserved it. He probably did something to anger those people. If you just make better decisions, he wouldn't be there. Or I'm a priest. I'm not a paramedic. Someone else is way more qualified. All right, you can go on and on and on about the possible reasons that they didn't help him. But the reality is, uh, none of them are true because these people didn't exist. Okay? This is a story. Yet we insert all of these meanings and these excuses in there because they're the same excuses we would make. We are the priest and the Levite in this story. That's the point of the parable for this legal expert is to say, you are acting like this. You're loving people only to a sentimental level, but when the rubber meets the road, there's not action involved. And all of us have been able to identify 
with the priest and the Levite here in many ways. Probably just today we've failed to love someone to the level that we're called to. We understand that the sin of omission, meaning not doing what you're supposed to do, is as bad as the sin of commission, doing what you're not supposed to do. Failing to love someone, to help someone in need, is a sin of omission. We often find many ways to to justify ourselves, just as the legal expert did at that time, of not loving people, to not help those in need. And the power of self-deception and self-justification grows, all right? Maybe it's hard at first to walk to the other side of the road in our lives, but the more times you do it, the easier it gets. And we all pick and choose who our neighbors are. Our conscience becomes seared in this. The priest and the Levite represents all of us. And when we're honest with ourselves, as we're about to study the Good Samaritan, it's really hard to love at this level and to love at this level consistently. But this now becomes for us the prime example of what loving your neighbor looks like, the Good Samaritan. And that's where we move on here to see this, this level of love that, that there is this compassion here. And to understand the remarkability of this compassion, you need the context again of Samaritans and Jews. Many of us probably know this, but this helps us understand how remarkable this story is. The man on the side of the road was a Jew. All right? He would have been brothers in the faith with the priest and the Levite. They left him behind. But now the Samaritan, who is the hated enemy of the Jews, and right, this was mutual. They hated each other. And it goes back centuries. We won't go into it this morning. But it goes back a long time ago to the point that they were rivals even on the mountains of with the, with, uh, where they worshipped. All right? they, they hated each other. They never mixed, and they went to great lengths to make sure they are never by each other. But here comes a Samaritan, who probably won't be walking down this road to begin with, who sees his hated enemy dying in the ditch and has a heart of compassion for him. And that's where true neighborly love starts, is with compassion. Truly aching for a person when they're in need, and that dispels this idea of they probably deserved it. I'm not going to get involved with that. They made their own decisions. But even when someone may deserve it, even when they've been your mortal enemy, you still have a love and a compassion for them. That's so consistent with the teachings of Jesus that we are to love all people, even and especially our enemies, even those who may persecute you. We love them. And compassion moves you into action, into authentic love. And many times we have this fake compassion in our lives. All right? And this is, again, we have to evaluate ourselves. This is a tough lesson for all of us. Oh, I feel bad for them. Just throw some money at it, maybe they'll go away. Right? I'll just trust someone else to do it, but eh, I feel bad for you. Compassion moves you into tangible care. It removes all of the excuses, the justified excuses we may have. And it moves us into the action. That's the next part, verse 34. That loving your neighbor involves extending care to them. We see after he saw this man, he had pity on him, which means he had compassion on him. 
Now the Samaritan went to him, physically bandaged his wounds, he poured oil and wine, and then he took man, the man on his own donkey and brought him to an inn, which was kind of like the clinic of the day, and he took care of him. He made sure that, that he was going to be restored into health and not just trusting someone else would. And so often our response to these kinds of things, even when we feel bad, is kind of like the, well, I'll pray for you. you know, and that's, that's good. We need to pray for each other. But we use that as a way of exonerating ourselves from responsibility. But James chapter 2 tells us that suppose this is what faith looks like when it has accompanied action. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and food, and if one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm, be well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is that? In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. Love is accompanied by action. And rather than walking to the other side of the road, the Samaritan now walks to the person with a heart of compassion and takes care of them in a tangible way. Now, it's important to note, we cannot personally care for everyone in our lives, everyone who has a need. And I think that's an impossible uh, expectation of ourselves, but we can make sure that they're cared for. And we see both examples in this story here today. But we see that when he poured wine and oil on this person, uh, he was really taking care of the wounds immediately. And there's this immediate care that's given, where the wine would be like an antiseptic, and the oil would kind of be like a balm that would heal up the wounds. He needed everything in his own power at the moment with the resources he had to take care of that person, and now puts him on a track of care at the inn. But this is another part that's difficult for us, uh, because often we see these needs, we see this opportunity to love, and we just say, there's nothing I can do. There's nothing I can do, which at times can be true. But if we're honest with ourselves, most of the time, it's not that there's nothing we can do, there's just many things we aren't willing to do. Because we don't want to consider the cost, the personal cost it will take to love them. And here again, the Samaritan is loving at great personal cost. That he took this man the next day, so that means he, he went out of his way, of his schedule, he spent the night taking care of this man. And now the next day, he took out two denarii, which is two days of wages, gave them to the innkeeper. We see many different levels of cost here in this story. And the first is that he uh, is giving up the cost of his own comfort. He gives up his, his wine and his oil, which were used for cooking, and travelers in this day would have only brought enough that they would have used for their immediate journey. So it kind of means he's going hungry now. He's not able to prepare his own food when he's taking care of this man. Right, he gave up his donkey, which means now he's carrying his own luggage, and now he's giving up uh, his time, spending time with him and now uh, committing to be with him. He's giving up his money, which is enough now for 30 or 40 days in this inn. And this robber in this story is saying, what's yours is mine. The priest and the Levite are saying, what's mine is mine. And the Samaritan is saying, what's mine is yours. Love comes with a cost, and we're called into this sacrificial love where we know when we love God, 
when we love people, it's going to come at some kind of cost to us. And love is really accepting that cost. Loved at great personal cost. And the fourth C we have here today, I don't know if you've noticed, they're alliterated. Uh, the fourth C is commitment. That loving people requires, loving your neighbor requires a degree of commitment. He is with them for the long haul. And now he, he transfers them over to the innkeeper and says, look after him. And when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. I'm going to take care of this guy to the very end and make sure that he's restored into full health. And again, this is a part where we often struggle of, I'm willing to help for a time. But after that, I don't know if I can love you that long. Loving your neighbor means having this commitment to the full end. And through all of this, we see neighborly love in the story given at the highest degree. This is the full extent of the law of what it's meant to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, there's three important questions that are answered through this parable. And the first is, who is my neighbor? Who's my neighbor? Well, this is, this is one to open up your perspective. This is the question the legal expert asked with an answer in his mind already. I know who is and isn't my neighbor. The answer Jesus gives is that everyone is our neighbor. Anyone who has a need around you is your neighbor, and we're called to love them as a Christian. And Jesus says in uh, the book of Matthew, in the... Um, in the Sermon on the Mount, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? And isn't that what the tax collectors are doing, kind of the lowest of society for the Jews? It's not hard to love those, only love those who love you. If you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Isn't that how the pagans act? See, this call to love as a Christian goes well beyond what is culturally normative. That we're to love all people as though they are our neighbors. And it isn't for us to define who and who, who is and isn't our neighbors, but rather to be neighborly to all people we meet. Who is my neighbor? And Jesus answers, it's, it's everyone. It's everyone. How do I love my neighbor? Well, that's what we saw displayed today in this parable, is that you love them profoundly. Okay, you love them deeply, you love them sacrificially. And this is the full extent of the law. When you love your neighbors as yourself, you love them in this way. Now, have you ever loved so, someone so deeply that you would have set everything aside for them, like this man did? Again, if we're honest, we see someone respond to someone in need like this, we're probably going to say, that's a bit excessive, right? Maybe even for a family, let alone a a stranger, let alone an enemy. It's excessive, but this is the invitation of God to love people in this way. But the third and most important question, and this is the part we often overlook in this parable, how do I inherit eternal life? That was the first question that the legal expert asked Jesus. And again, he was asking for the wrong reasons. He didn't really want to know the answer, but it's life's most important question. And I think this parable was given for two big reasons. And the first, again, is to, to display the extent of how we are called to love one another, but
But the second is to expose this man's heart, the shortcomings of his heart. Because this legal expert would have trusted in the law to save him. He already had all the answers. He didn't want the answers, he wanted the argument. He wanted to argue with the Son of God about how it was to enter the kingdom of heaven. Because the reality is when we look at this parable, nobody can love like this, at least not perfectly and not forever. We're all going to fall short here. We can strive to it and we should, but it's impossible to love someone to this degree, to love all people at this degree. And nobody has ever loved like this except one. The guy given the parable. The one that the legal expert is asking, how do I go to heaven? Only Jesus has ever loved someone so profoundly, even and especially the enemy. We're told in the book of Romans that we were enemies of God. And even while we were enemies, Jesus died for us. Jesus loves us with great compassion and care at the highest cost and with the greatest commitment. And it should have been at this moment, as all of us should understand, we're never going to be able to love like this, though we should strive for it. But if this is the measure of how we are to go to heaven, because Jesus says, now go and do this. Love in the same way, and you will live. Our brains should be saying, uh, Jesus, I can't do that. All right, and this is where this legal expert should have been able to express his own inabilities and shortcomings here rather than doubling down in his pride and his arguments. He should have said to Jesus, I can't do this. I would need some help. And that's where Jesus would have probably smiled and said, I know a guy, <laughs> right? That's what he's waiting for all of us to do is say, I need help. I need help. And that's when we're finally starting to ask the right questions. How do I do this because I can't? See, that's what we all need to do in a parable like this, is know the lofty expectations of the law and ask for help. To admit our shortcomings, to admit to Jesus that we have fallen short in this as well as every other part of the law. And just to examine loving the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength We've probably all failed in that one today, too. But it's Jesus, through his grace, who perfectly kept the law and fulfilled it for us, who perfectly loved us as he calls us to love others, who achieved righteousness on the basis of the law, the only person who ever has, now extends that righteousness to us. That's how we inherit eternal life. And a lot of people read this parable and say this is just a call to simple humanitarianism, which is in exchange for heaven. It's not the point, the greater point, that's being made here. But I think when we see this as God's design for us, right? And when we look at the way God calls us to love people as his expectation, which technically it is, we're always going to feel like a failure and we're just going to give up. But if we view it as his invitation to maybe deepen the level in which we love people and who we consider we will and will not love, I think it opens up all sorts of possibilities for us, and it's exciting. So Jesus would often ask these questions that would kind of probe the hearts of those who are around him, especially this lawyer who was just trying to pick an argument. 
And it opened up the perspective. And so I'm, I have one, one self-reflection question to end the sermon today. All right, so if God's design is for me to love all people as if they were my neighbor, am I starting with my actual neighbors? That's kind of the subtext of this whole parable is it's the expectation that you would love your actual neighbors. And so you should love even strangers and enemies in the same way. Now, I read through a book this summer, one of them that I had my shelf for a long time, uh, and I read through it, and it really resonated with me. It's called The Art of Neighboring. And one exercise they had in there that I'm going to invite all of you uh, to do here as, a, as a individuals in this church as we consider how we live outwardly in our communities is to consider the question, who is my neighbor, in a literal sense. All right, so there's this sheet. We have these available in the back. I am giving you homework today. Uh, it's, it's optional, but I highly encourage it. And really it's just this question of who is my neighbor, and it's, it's this grid of eight squares around your home. Now, I know we don't all live in a perfect square, but just consider the eight closest homes to you, the people around you. And as Steph made the point this morning, it's not pick and choose uh, in your neighborhood, uh, but the eight literal closest homes to you. And, and see if you can answer these questions. And, and A for each home is just their names. Can you list the names of the eight households closest to you? B would be relevant information from conversations you've had with them. What do they do for a job? Where's, what's their family background? Where they grew up? And then C would be more in-depth information. What are their dreams and goals? What's their belief of God? And what, we've, what he found, the author of this book, is that only about 10% of people could answer just A for all the boxes. 3% could answer B for all the boxes, and less than 1% could answer C for all the boxes. These are Christians, those who are to love their neighbors, and the uh, concept is that you would for sure love your literal neighbors. It's about meeting needs, and what we understand from this parable is it's, it's not that you're waiting passively for needs to fill, right? You're not waiting for them to come and collapse in your, your, your yard so you can pour some oil on them, all right? But knowing them, knowing their needs, and, getting, and, and just being able to have this relationship with them. And this is something that really uh, convicted me this year because I can't answer A for all of these either. And I've been living here for almost 10 years. And I'm your pastor, right? We all, I think, are going to have a hard time filling this out. Now, I can get seven out of eight, but when it comes to B, it's going to get less, and when it comes to C, it's going to be even less. But if this parable explains the PhD level of love, are we at least operating at a kindergarten level? And so we're going to go through this series and have more uh, ways to apply these things and to start reaching out to your neighbors, to reach out to those around you and have that outward faith we're going to come back to this in a few weeks, that if you can fill out this grid, even just uh, A for each one, where do we go from there? But just some ideas for you guys. All right, when your neighbors are out, go talk to them. We're getting into leaf raking season. Uh, you're probably going to be out at the same time. Strike up a conversation. Offer to help them. If there's someone new in your neighborhood, bring them a plate of cookies or something to welcome them, a card just explaining who you are. 
There's so many ways to do this, but it all starts with being intentional. All right, and then next we're going to talk about how scary that is and overcoming your fears of building relationships with people around you. But I really believe that if we're going to love all people as though they are our neighbors, we should start by loving our actual neighbors. And I want us to be a church in this town that has, and in our communities, that has a profound outreach and impact for Christ. But it starts with knowing them. It starts with knowing them. I'll, I'll end with a really quick story here today. Vikings don't play till 3.30, so we're good. But it would be really quick. But I just want you to know this is something that's convicting for me, that's difficult for me, even as your pastor. And about six months ago, in the spring, uh, there was one of my neighbors, he wouldn't have been one of my eight, but he would have just been outside that, that realm, that I was walking by, uh, was dropping off Mason at his daycare, and was about to go into church, and I had a busy day full of meetings, okay? And I had a lot of things to prepare for, and there's all sorts of things, it was good, it was productive, it's for a ministry here, but I saw a guy struggling to load his lawnmower on his trailer. You know, the first thing I said, it looks hard, but he'll figure it out. I'm busy, got to get into work. And I literally drove to the parking lot, and I realized, if I can't consider that ministry, then I can't consider this ministry. And I drove back, and I helped the guy who's struggling to get this lawnmower loaded on his trailer. And I said, hi, my name is Dominic. I'm your neighbor across the park. And we struck, struck up a conversation I was only planning to just help him load the lawnmower and then leave, right? Just a tangible way to help. But then we got into a really in-depth conversation about spirituality, about his history in church, about his struggles in the faith right now, before he knew I was a pastor. And then he found out I was a pastor and said, maybe you can help me with these things and these questions I have. And we started a relationship that day that didn't go much of any. We actually moved away this summer. But it started this familiarity and this idea that he could come to me with these things. I think it really goes to show that when you see these needs, you can make all of the excuses you have. And for me, it was even good excuses. I had a busy day. But I think you have to respond to them. You have to be intentional. You have to reach out to the people who are there and meet the needs that are in front of you. And I think God uses those moments in profound ways we can never plan for. Who is your neighbor? Well, it starts with the people who are there. Get to know the people who are there. We'll be talking more about this in uh, the weeks to come. But let's close in prayer today as we commit this time to the Lord. So God, we thank you for the invitation you extend to all of us. Uh, we know we're never going to do this perfectly. That's kind of the point, uh, God, because it means you're the only one who could. And so we do trust in you, Jesus, as the one who exemplified love for us on the cross at a level deeper than we can ever even imagine, let alone replicate, that we would trust in you first and foremost for our salvation and for all things. But God, in that, you, you give us the ability to love even deeper. Now your love moves through us. So I, God, I pray that we could love others in the same way that you love us, that we can be growing in this and stretching in this, but trusting first in your power and your provision in that. So, Lord, in the next few weeks, I pray that there would be these opportunities that many would grab this sheet on their way out and start figuring out how we're going to fill out this grid and get to know 
our neighbors, but may you just be working through us in these relationships, uh, God, that you uh, would be reaching these communities around us as we love so deeply, uh, not for our own glory, not for our own benefits, but Lord, for your glory and for your kingdom. And so we pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen.